quite often people ask me what is a psychiatrist doing in an ashram because generally it is believed that ashram is a place where people go to find peace and solace so technically psychiatrist is a almost out of date in a place like that apart from his own personal sadhana that's a different thing but the more one walks the path the more one discovers that this conception of yoga is often a conception which is held until you start walking the path i read a very interesting book on child upbringing on particularly focused on teenagers and the book starts by this little inscription the people who have uh, written the book they write i thought i knew everything about bringing up a child until i had my own so it's so true that as we walk the path we discover it is at once a delightful and a dangerous journey full of its beauty majesty at the same time its challenges and both are intertwined with each other because no conquest is ever won without facing challenges so path of yoga especially shorbindo's yoga is not for not an escape it's not meant for tired soul seeking escape seeking to be saved from a world of misery and torment it is meant as shubindo says in one of his uh, beautiful letters i have not come here to open a mat or create sanyasins but to call the souls of the strong and ready for the leela of krishna and kali souls of the strong so our life runs on these two streams outside challenges which prepare us for the inner life and inner challenges which prepare us for the outer life they are so beautifully intertwined with each other so that's why when uh, asmuk bhai was saying it's a retreat and so beautifully it's a retreat of a different kind i may like to add a little adjective to it it's a strategic retreat it's not a retreat so that we learn how to escape from the outer into the inner because very often when we use the word inner journey it carries a certain connotation that well uh, eventually the real thing is inside and outside is simply a shell an appearance an illusion and we have to learn to get inside and find that inner truth well that is one side of the story and equally important or even rather the final sign of conquest is that this inner journey this inner conquest this inner discovery returns back upon outer life otherwise it serves little purpose beyond ourselves because it's one thing that i sit in meditation have peace joy my health improves and everything starts being good in my inner life but it has no purpose as far as the world is concerned so that's why the mother says in this yoga there is a double aspect an individual and a collective aspect so it's not enough that we simply sit in meditation find out a way of meditation or a technique 
by which we can go inside and practice it for the rest of our life. It's equally important that we translate it into our everyday living. It should become a way of life, a way of breathing, a way of acting, a way of thinking, a way of the entire gamut of human activities. The whole thing should change the way we relate with them. And that's why these retreats, I think last year also I had mentioned, and I always in all these conferences, I like to remind myself and all of us that uh, going by the line of ancient traditions, it is a yagna. So it is not just an intellectual deliberation on certain subjects. It's not just talks, lectures, question-answer session, but yagna. Now what happens in a yagna, in a yagna, Yagna is meant for purification. So everybody comes. All of us come with our own ideas, thoughts, concepts. Not only here, when we start this journey, we have our ideas. We have an idea of who or what the divine is. And we proceed on the journey. But as we proceed on the journey, if we are sincere in our resolve and aspiration, our very ideas, our conceptions begin to change. They begin to get more and more purified, uplifted, widened, as if a transmuting finger of love and light was pressing it to change. And that's why these are yagnas. In the sense, we all come with a certain kind of understanding, uh, conceptions, uh, our feelings towards uh, life, towards ourselves, towards God. And all these things should undergo a purificatory change. So this is the process and all of us are participants to it. It's not that there are some speakers and some listeners because that would beat the very purpose of yagna. Um, just as our individual life runs on two levels, we just spoke about an outer and an inner. And any person who has uh, even a little bit of awakened subjective sense as all of us here have, we know this, we are well aware that our life runs along two streams. And very often, and it's very unfortunate, it's the most tragic thing of life, where the inner and the outer are at variance with each other. That there is an outer life which is going on and there is inner life which is so very different, they are not in sync with each other. Um, it can lead to a whole gamut of uh, civilizational diseases, for instance, hypocrisy, lying, not living one's own authentic life, etc., etc., and... Uh, we call so many names nowadays and uh, particularly here in America itself about 40-50 years back just around the time when the supermind descended people began to feel that well this is not the life that we want there is something else something deeper, something higher, something truer at least something to which I can say this is my life with authenticity and there was a cry as if here which manifested in various ways in revolt against the established systems and processes um, and over a period of time, this begins to serve as a catalyst for change. So the mother and Shirobindo are not just masters who have come to teach some individuals some technique of yoga. Very often we tend to get into this frame of mind. There are many masters and here is one more master. And so just as every master has his own brand of yoga, we want to know what is Shirobindo's brand of yoga. Well, integral yoga has its own special aspects which we will, over the course of time, next few days, we will be talking about. But what is important is, and that's something which we should not miss, is that Shurabinda and the mother, much more than simply giving the yoga to some individuals in an ashram or elsewhere, 
have come to give the yoga to earth to carry it further this collective march of mankind this is a very unique dimension which is very often missed when we just see well there are so many masters here is another master well uh, shurvindra and the mother are not just masters who have come to teach us a method or practice they are also a master that is one part of it but more importantly they are those who have come to take creation take this earth consciousness and humanity in it to the next level of evolution and that's the most fascinating part of um, what they have come to give to earth and man now what we can do we can participate and join this evolutionary stream or we can act at variance with it or we can be indifferent to it nevertheless evolution will carry humanity forward we can have the privilege and the joy of being participant collaborators or maybe we can just wait and watch let's see when evolution happens then we will see and at the end of it when the march of civilization has gone much forward then look back and say oh i wish i had participated this is the beauty of uh, mother and shurbindo's thought yoga that they talk about the collective march of mankind and just as we have in our individual life two levels at which we live an outer level and an inner level so also with regard to our collective life we have these two levels outwardly there are events circumstances like we have wars uh, almost near war situation breaking up in the middle east we have uh, um, you know economic crisis we have uh, in india this year um, suddenly a surge of hope so so many things are happening all over the world this these events we try to look understand judge in our own limited way and eventually we fall back upon a a disease called as me myself and we see look at these events only through this lens how is it going to make me happy how is it going to affect my economic condition and how is it going to help me in my personal ambitions and its realizations and therefore we miss the whole purpose of this evolutionary march and behind this surface events there is a deeper layer of activity that is going on which is very often missed in one of the aphorisms mother and shubindo shubindo gives the aphorism and mother comments on it she says shubindo who had deeply studied history he knew that history never catches those events which are really of great strategic significance it only talks about superficial things the way we studied this year there was a war and the war was fought between this king and that king this king won and that is the end of the story then there was another kingdom another era of reign of this particular king and his dynasty that's a very superficial to way to look at history but the truths of history history is about the collective march of mankind they lie buried deep inside very often unnoticed just as in the individual's life in fact that aspect of savitri which just now narad was reading uh, how beautifully shurbindo when he speaks about that the event that savitri is going driven uh, driving her chariot um, shurbindo says suddenly there is a point of time when she her chariot is arrested and she could have passed by 
there was no need. She she may not have stopped. She would have just passed by the road, and missing her turn of fate. That one moment sealed her destiny. More important than that, that need within her heart of what really is true love. It's not depicted in Savitri's story that we read. But surely she was not at all, as you know, we read in the author's note. Uh, what Shurabindu has to say about it. Savitri was not an ordinary lady who was just going out and looking for a man as a partner of her life. She was looking for true love. Can there be possibility of true love? As Savitri says, deep possibility always to love. Of course, human beings experience love, but this love comes and goes. There is a moment of intensity and then it wanes away. But here is Savitri looking for true love and in that process she discovers someone. Now the beauty of the story is that though she discovers someone outside herself, for true love she has to discover within herself. And what is that true love? It becomes, it expresses itself in facing the challenge of death. Right in the very beginning when it is told that Satyavan is going to die. And here is Savitri who takes the challenge and says that well, I have loved him, this one face, and I shall love him forever. Whatever happens, whatever be the ups and downs, even death cannot take away. This is the kind of love that Savitri embodies. Now, this is the inner story. What is happening in Savitri's inner life? Shurabindu brings it out so beautifully. All that is going on inside her is a turmoil. And similarly, we see in collective life of humanity, an inner story, like an inner thread. Whereas what we gather are, these surface events. Now when we look back 100 years back, uh, why this theme came up about the significance of mothers coming, well, this is the 100th year of the mothers coming to Pondicherry and her meeting with Shurabindu. This is the 100th year. This event uh, took place on 29th March 1914. She has come and she met Shurabindu on a staircase and then she notes in her diary something which Many would have read, not read, and what, what she writes in a diary the next day. She says, he whom we saw yesterday is here upon earth. Who is he whom she saw yesterday? The mother before coming here had uh, several contact with great yogic personalities. Some of them she had noted in a diary. We know one of her communications with Sakyamuni, Buddha, that of course is a later communication. She had already realized the inner imminent divine and the truth of the Gita in a very interesting way. Uh, very few people know, people know that before coming to the ashram, to, there was no ashram before coming to India, the mother had already realized the truths of Vedanta, the truth of the Gita and amazing her life, inner life was so rich. Wonderful, just to glance at some of these experiences when someone, um, I believe he was, if I am not mistaken, the husband of Yashodama. Yashodama happened to be the guru of Roland Nixon who was uh, Christianed as Krishna Prem. And uh, Krishna Prem has been immortalized with regard to his own unique relation with Sri through the agency of Dilip Kumar Roy. Dilip Kumar Roy will pass on his ideas to Shirobindo or some of uh, snippets from his letters and Shirobindo would comment upon it and he would pass it back to Krishna Prem. 
it was a very interesting kind of interchange and he even came to ashram this is just a little aside but worth going into that when krishn prem goes to the ashram he has darshan of mother and he asks the mother mother i want more and more bhakti for my guru and the mother says but you already have it he says no i want it to be more complete the mother was ecstatic she goes into trance she remains for few minutes in that state and then she is very happy she blesses him and then this example she quotes to people in the ashram this is how it should be that a person who has so much love for his guru still is not happy that no i don't love her enough her guru his guru was yashoda ma and her husband meets the mother in paris and gives her a very clumsy translation of the bhagavad gita and it's a french translation from uh, from sanskrit and it's not good but as uh, this is the sign of true greatness mother has instantly found the key what is the key that he says and the mother immediately takes it that regard krishna as the imminent divine within you this is the key of the gita regard krishna as the imminent divine within you and quite naturally then we are arjuna seeking for solution to our solution to action what we should do we should not do how we should act so this is the state just as in savitri the key is that we are satyavan caught in the forest of life we have lost our celestial celestial kingdom and the divine sight and savitri is the grace who comes to save the love that comes to carry us forward so she gets the key and she says she takes it that well i am going to realize these truths and within a month she had realized the truth of the gita she had realized the truth of the ishopanishad when we speak we were just having chanting of om and mother had such wonderful experiences that when in a group in paris someone who had come from india uh, who had gone to india and come back and he said uh, one of the things he learned from india was om so he said you know what they do there they they use this sacred word and as he chanted well others may have had their own experience but to the mother immediately she had the vision of the divine presence right then they are just by the chanting once chanting of that om and when he would chant a mantra to agni she would see the god agni actually come and appear before her so it was an amazingly rich life she had not come to india seeking for a path of yoga as shobindu says the mother mother had already realized the supermind before coming here and he goes on to add that she entered through the front door while he is showing the with his own sense of humor he says whereas he entered through the back door what was the back door his quest for supermind was indirect to help humanity to make this earth a better place but for the mother it was straight she was going from one realization to another which she speaks of that rich in a life in prayers and meditation and she had already realized the supermind and had already known that she has to do a certain work upon earth and that program she gives in 1912 in one of her meetings there is a program and it's very amazing program she says one of the work is to speak once again to the world the eternal word the same truths which people have discovered these truths get covered over a period of time what is called in india as sanatan dharma and over a period of time people interpret it in different ways 
and this these truths become submerged as it were behind a mass of dead rituals religiosity and extra ostentatious show and externalities then the divine comes he breaks the shell and liberates the inner truth that is one of the work of the avatars every time the vedic truths the deepest truths that mankind has discovered get buried we see this happening in the age of the upanishads we see this happening when shri krishna comes that all the vedic truths have turned into rituals people were lighting outer fires that's why you know i use the word yagna this is a yagna because it's not external fire but an inner fire we light but people turned it into lighting an external fire putting some uh, ghee into it putting all kinds of things into it and believing that they are doing something great so shri krishna comes and breaks it liberates the truth that is inside and gives it once again to mankind in its pristine purity this is one of the work that the divine advents have to do why i am speaking about it is to make a distinction between masters and the avatar shurbindo is not a master alone but an avatar who comes to once again both shurbindo and the mother first one of their work is to liberate those truths which have been buried under the embers of a dying aspiration because every age uh, there is an aspiration period of aspiration then after a while and there is a period when large chunks of humanity would actually aspire it's a wonderful period when people are um, aspiring they want to go beyond their limited frontiers of understanding knowledge vision it's not um, spiritual truths are not cabined into fixed formulas of um, what is called as formal religions but it's like an active dynamic seeking then this period wanes and humanity falls back into a uh, torpor and it's very happy with sunday meditation for one hour or everyday meditation for one hour and believing it has done its duty and paid its debt to god or simply doing that diya agarbatti in homes and chanting some with with with, with you know um, a bell some sacred things and it believes that i am on the path of yoga or i am doing i have done my duty towards god so the divine has to come and break this shell something which we see happening today but 100 years back when we look back at all over the world what was the condition abject darkness in every sphere religion religion had become nothing but as shubindra says religion sat on a blood stained throne those who were meant to create unity and live in the unity of mankind were threatening those who didn't conform to their belief their faith cabining god into a narrow idea of the mind that god is only this exclusively this and not something other than that and humanity had buried itself into that in india indian context i can speak about uh, more clearly it was happening everywhere and as i said in the west it took the form of a revolt against all these things in india it was buried again in the mass of superstition rituals something unfortunately still carrying on people believing that if they keep fast god will be more happy and uh, if they you know uh, not only it's about fast but many habits and customs which came about the position of women in society the way people were dealing with each other so all that had to be thrown aside and cast away by the advancing spirit of time this was 100 years back many other things were happening simultaneously 1914 is also the year when the first world war started and started over what such a trifle i mean it was actually a comment made 
I think, uh, in Austria on one of the Yugoslav ambassadors. It was a demeaning comment and it slowly the, it, it led to a lot of protest and eventually the whole world burst into a flame. Not only millions of people died in the war, but three times more died by the plague that followed it, which is a well-known thing, 1918, when the plague came. So this was the kind of world we, when we look 100 years back, the state of uh, women, the state of uh, money, the state of, you know, threatening demons. We often hear that when avatar comes, there are demons who have already come and established themselves. So what were the demons that had already established themselves? On one side, imperialism. Imperialism believed that there are some who are superior and some who are inferior. And the superiors have a right to rule and they have to educate the inferiors to come up to that level. This is a very interesting story of the mother when she was coming to India, where she hits at the roots of this thought. So she is on the ship and naturally uh, she has a certain religious background. So suddenly she says that um, probably it was a Sunday and everybody wanted to hold a, uh, you know, to pray with a certain book and the priest came and Everybody went down, but she didn't go. So, and she describes it so beautifully that they, they went there with a very solemn voice for half an hour or ten minutes. They all prayed. And after that, they were back to the bar, smoking, drinking, gambling, everything, as if this was, they have paid their debt to God. So when the priest saw that she has not come, she came. he comes up and asks her, uh, you don't believe uh, in God? You didn't come? He says, no, but I don't believe in uh, this kind of God. He says, what do you mean? Uh, then she says, uh, tells the priest, may I ask you a question? He says, yes. He says, you know, you are going all the way to India and China to convert people. Do you know that that civilization had already developed to an extent thousands of years back before even your civilization came into existence, they had found a path leading to God. This is how she re responds and replies. Now, this indicates that she had already come. All these formal ideas about religion, whether in India or West, she had come to liberate humanity from those clutches. Already her avataric work had begun on the ship. It's a very small incidence, but an incidence which was harbinger of the future to come. So we see during that, that age imperialism, but still worse demon, fascism, Nazism, it not only believed that some people are inferior, but that those who are inferior have no right to exist. They should be exterminated, a completely asuric way of looking at life. And then of course there was positivism. Science believed that it has finally discovered the secret. You know, God has a wonderful sense of humor. So in 1900 Science Congress, it's a very interesting story. Uh, Lord Kelvin, who has discovered the absolute uh, zero, minus 473, minus 273 degree. So in the Science Congress, he declared that we have finally found the ultimate cause of everything. And obviously he was referring to science, that material science has discovered everything. There is no need to turn to God. All this is nonsense. And we have only two clouds. Once those are cleared, you know, we will know everything. What were the two clouds? The motion of the stars and another thing was the uh, activity in the at the atomic level the photoelectric effect the same year in 1900 towards the end these two uh, truths were discovered 
by Max Planck and Albert Einstein. And strangely, when they discovered this truth, the entire edifice of science, of which Lord Kelvin was so proud, that collapsed. The whole Newtonian world collapsed. It was amazing. It was almost like, look, I am going to build a new world and that cannot be built on the basis of the old. So in the scientific field, we saw in the beginning of the previous century, the idea of evolution, idea of genetics and another very interesting discovery which took place around 1914, which was amazing, which has gone unnoticed by a large section of humanity, though people are still waking up to that. And that was Sir Jagdish Chandra Bose's discovery that plants and metals also, they behave like humans. In fact, this whole phenomena which he demonstrated in London before a group of scientists and uh, this whole phenomena when the reporters reported, they said he makes us feel so uh, ordinary, he makes us feel almost embarrassed that well, these people have absolutely, these plants and metals have ab absolutely the same re reactions and responses like we do. So we, are, we believe we are superior, but it's not true. The plants and uh, you know, metals react the same way. This whole news, Sri Aurobindo, almost verbatim, reports with his own comments in the Arya. So 100 years back, something that happened as soon as the mother came um, and met Sri Aurobindo, on one side, we saw the world thrown up into the flames of the First World War. And what was it? It was nothing but the beginning of the end of the old world. Later on, Shurabindu will speak about it in um, in Savitri, a giant dance of Shiva tore the past. And this destruction will continue. Even now, it is continuing. In every child who is reacting and revolting against the old ways of thought, this is continuing. And in everyone where there is a search for something new, wherever people are no more satisfied with the old paradigms, the new world is forming itself. The mother says so beautifully in one of her talks in 1912 before coming to Shirobindo that who is ready for the new world? She says when we, mankind understands that all that it has discovered so far is nothing. It cannot satisfy him. There is something else, something more. He is no more satisfied with the old ways of thought, the old frames of understanding life, the old concept, then he is ready for the new world. So, we see that process taking place now, but it started then. How did it start? While on the one side, the forces of division and darkness, but even behind them, who stands behind darkness? In Indian thought, we say Kali. She is the mother. She is ultimately, even the darkest forces obey her, impulsion. And it is she who was changing the leaf of time, destroying all that had to be destroyed. One of the interesting offshoot of the First World War was the rise of feminism. And in a very strange way, simply because people discovered that there were not enough men left for the First World War. So what happened was that women were recruited. And these women did a better job. Surely they do a much better job, we know it now. But at that point of time, for the first time, humanity recognized that women are capable of doing everything that men do and do it better. And the mother has made a whole, uh, she has talked about it, what are the possibility of women in the future. So simultaneously, while the war was destroying the old world, the mother and Shurabindo started creating a new world. 
and we see this new world coming into birth right soon after the meeting of Mother and Shurabindu. Within 2-3 months, in fact, August 15th, August, uh, June 21st, the Arya was conceived, 1914. And August 15th, the first issue was supposed to be out. And who would shoulder the full responsibility? Shurabindu. So on one side, the old frames are going away. On the other side, the new thought. And what a new thought. Much of Shurabindu's writings that we see today, this um, synthesis of yoga, essays on the Gita, secret of the Vedas, human cycle, they were all written in 1914 to 1919. And imagine humanity is right now finding them fresh, not only fresh as today, but fresh as tomorrow. That something beautiful is there which will which can yet save us. And it's amazing. Like in 1919, uh, Shobindo adds a postscript chapter after the war. And you know, right after that, the American president, thanks to his uh, initiative, uh, Woodrow Wilson, I think First World War, and thanks to his initiative, there was a League of Nations which was formed. And Shubindu says it is only a seed, it is not the ultimate thing. Many things have to come towards human unity, but it's the right step. It's no wonder that the daughter of the American president who engaged in the First World War happened to not only come to Shirobindo Ashram, but live there and die there. Uh, she was named as Nishtha by Shirobindo, means the devoted one. And it's so amazing that uh, she was suffering from a whole lot of conditions and it's you know, we need not talk about those conditions, physical conditions. Uh, after the war, during the war, she had engaged herself very much as a front-line person, going and singing to the soldiers, inspiring them, and she saw all that horror and suffered a breakdown. Her very nerves could not take it. And so when she came to India, all the doctors said, don't go, don't do this, you are already very sick, your creatinine is high, your blood urea is not good, don't go there. She went. And she stayed on. There is a very beautiful letter of Nishtha to Shirobindo asking him about what this path is. She was inspired by essays on the Gita particularly. She would go and sit in the library and had to be literally asked that please, madam, please leave because the time is up and she wouldn't feel like leaving because that was the way she engaged herself with uh, these writings. And when Shirobindo replies to her, what is this path? That letter is a standalone classic in what this yoga is. One doesn't have to read anything else except that letter which describes in one single letter what is this yoga, what is its relation to the past, what does it want to do for the future, what is the method, what is the process, everything is described in one letter. It's an amazing letter. So Nishtha comes and when she is very unwell, then during Second World War, fleet is sent Please come back to America. You will be much safer. And she has this to say, Well, you can save my body perhaps, but who will look after my soul? So this is the way around that period, souls began to become drawn towards this new idea. In fact, right soon after the meeting, the first act was that they created a society called the New Idea. It was a French name. Uh, I.D. Novelli, the, the, the new idea. And there, the mother also says what its members are expected to do. And it's very, uh, very interesting to read that note. 
So everybody who was a member of the new idea was expected a to devote at least one hour a day in doing some unselfish work. So relevant even today. I mean, when I was reading it, I said, my God, even today, if I count the number of hours, 24 hours, and if we see how much I did only unselfishly, not for my personal profit. We are all doing a job, but obviously we are doing a job because we are getting money out of it. We are getting benefits out of it. We cook, but why? Because, well, I'll enjoy it. Or even when I cook organic food and all that stuff, it's to make myself healthy. So many things we do every day. We do it for name, for fame, for ambition, for money, etc., etc. And the mother says, at least one hour a day. Even meditation we do for our personal benefit. She says, one hour a day to do something which is unselfish. Not for any personal gain. She gives this first condition. And then... Every member will devote himself to some kind of a self-culture, discipline and meditation. This was the little work given to everybody. What was the self-culture? Shobindo speaks about it. Hundred years back he launched this project called the Arya. And people asked him, what is Arya? What does it mean? Because already this word was corrupted by Hitler to mean something just the very opposite. And Shobindo reveals that Aryan is not a physical type is not a geographical type but a psychological type of humanity it's a type of humanity which is not satisfied with its fixed frames but wants to go further beyond it is a humanity which battles against all that is dark and obscure inside slays it if need be so that truths can be liberated and he can make fresh conquest inside so he is a conqueror but a swarat not a Swaraj. Swaraj meant to conquer within. He, he strives towards self-conquest. So all these ideas, both as a practical thing and in the form of written things, Vishi Shurabindo revealing. And many of us do not know what profound um, way Shurabindo has written. To start with just the process of writing in 1914, even before that, Shurabindo says nothing was written by the mind. Everything came from above, from the divine consciousness and straight to the typewriter. Can we imagine what that writing is? Straight away descends, inspired and he types it out. And this mass of literature. Second, many things that took place behind this writing of which we are not aware. Shobindo has written, I was just uh, talking to Mahinder about, you know, Shobindo has written this wonderful treatise on the secret of the Vedas. And why would he have to write it? He could just give a branded form of meditation. It's much in fashion today. He would have been very famous. Some Kriya, some meditation he would have patented and or you know rehashed and people would have been very happy. Why secret of the Vedas? Because Vedas contain the march. They are the earliest documented evidence of aspiration of mankind. Collective aspiration towards truth, light, freedom, God, immortality. And what was that aspiration? How they walked the path? How we can reconnect with that aspiration? Because we all embody it. It's our common inheritance. We believe that our common inheritance is only the plants and the trees and, you know, physical nature. 
and we don't want to destroy it, which is a very good thought. It's a very nice, sobering thought that has come in mankind that we have inherited earth and we should not destroy it. But what about inheriting a common aspiration and connecting with each other at that level, not merely as this surname and that surname and this country and that country, but as inheriting that common aspiration which the Vedic and the Upanishadic sages carried within themselves. Now he reveals that truth and what is the story behind it, how he got that secret. He did not read the Vedas and then practice the yoga and found the results. He had already the experiences. He found in the Vedic experiences a confirmation of his experiences. So he said, oh, these are true things. They are not just documents. But more importantly, it was lost in a mass of external uh, understandings based on the uh, grammar of, uh, san- and of Sanskrit. Sri Aurobindo says, Sri Krishna came and gave to me a new Nirukta for interpreting the Vedas. Nirukta is the grammar. So Sri Krishna gives him the grammar. Imagine, Sayana has interpreted it according to the grammar prevalent at his time. Panini's grammar. We have, you know, other grammarians, Max Muller and everybody has messed up with the Vedas and given a totally different meaning. But here is Shurabindo, just as the mother gets, uh, Buddha comes and tells her, my message has been misunderstood. Please, you need to tell them. <laughs> Don't be worried, they will misunderstand you. Look how they misunderstood my message. And mother gives on commentaries on the Dhammapad. Similarly, the Gita, the Vedas, they were misunderstood. They were turned into either to justify any kind of action, duty, even violence and the Vedas for external rituals. Now Sri Krishna gives to Sri Aurobindo the key, Nirukta, to reinterpret them. So, so many things during that period, they all started the moment Mother and Sri Aurobindo came. As if the darkness began to be scattered. Many ideas that had already come into that age, just three ideas we can see. And these ideas, if they were not given a new direction by Shurabindu and the mother, they would have proved by now most disastrous for the world. One, we have already seen in science this idea that matter is everything. Now Mr. Max Planck, God's sense of humor, took the plank from below the feet of this science. Suddenly people discovered that no, this material world is floating on a void with some electrical charges. So. Einstein saw it and was absolutely flabbergasted. So this was one idea. The second idea, evolution is physical. People often feel that Shurabindo took from Darwin. No, Darwinian evolution is a very different kind of evolution. It's only about evolution of forms. Because of Darwinian idea of evolution, people talk about survival of the fittest. And truly if Darwin's evolution is the thing, then we should really end up fighting with each other to survive. Shiobindo gives to this evolution a new, absolutely new turn that no, evolution of forms is secondary to evolution of consciousness. He gives it a new meaning, new scope, new significance. To the idea that matter is the sole reality, he says no, matter is also Brahman and reveals another truth about matter, that how matter has to become an instrument of the spirit. A spirit is hiding itself behind matter. Third idea that we see was the menace of communism which rose and fell. 
collapsed. And why it's, it was a meanness? There is a truth behind it. The truth that all are equal. But the distortion is all are biologically equal. All are equal because we are all deep inside carry that essence of the divine. And therefore we see how communist ideology did so much damage to the world. Some of the worst crimes have been committed not by religious extremism. Of course religious extremism is to be blamed for many things. But equally by its seemingly very opposite, communistic and socialistic ideology. It's a very strange paradox. The ideologues have been the cause of so many, uh, I mean, Mao's when we dig these skeletons which he left behind literally. By, by ideologies and Shurbindo has foreseen all this. And he is giving them a totally new turn. As if in the thick of night, a new sun is beginning to rise. And when all this is done, then we see slowly a mass of humanity which hears the call. When the Arya was written, there was no ashram. There was no means of mass communication and spreading the message. It was just a small little journal which was just meeting its own expenses. Can we imagine today we talk about all these collected works and people offered, there was one particular American who offered, he said, well, sir, if we can package it like this and even he said, you should come here and give a talk and it will be very nice. And Shubindu says that, well, if you can bring out Arya in America, wonderful, but I can't package it in this way and, you know, twist and, you know, just for the sake of getting disciples or large number of people. Now, that Arya was carrying the seeds of a new light. It is now that those seeds are beginning to blossom. Earth had to be ploughed. In Indian thought, we have very interesting, uh, these relation between Rama and Lakshmana and Krishna and Balram. Balram is the elder brother. So, Balram is supposed to be the incarnation of Sheshnag and Krishna of Vishnu. So, Sheshnag comes to first clear the ground. He ploughs the ground. And then Krishna comes and dances his dance. So we have something very similar that first the soil of the mind was ploughed through the Arya. Seeds of light were sown into it. It was not so important that how many persons physically Arya is reaching. Shobindo was engaged in a deep occult action wherein these seeds were being sown into the human consciousness. Even a few who were reading it were becoming catalysts for the new change. And at the next level, some of these people who read it, who receive it, they say, Sir, we present ourselves for the great change. And that is the birth of this Yorbindu Ashram, naturally, organically, not by kind of uh, mental decision, but as if like a design of the divine, springing from inside and that movement spreads and today we are uh, even a handful is something wonderful sitting together and talking about these things it started there and why they had to wait for each other that is the last part of this story but the most interesting part the Rig Veda speak about creation as the divine Shakti going into this darkness and starting a creation there. That's how the Rig Veda speak about. The Divine Mother going far away from Brahman into the inconscient and starting the creation from there. She begins to build forms. 
सो ईच एज ऑफ मैनकाइंड वी सी शक्ति इज कमिंग फर्दर एंड फर्दर वन स्टेप हायर ब्रिंगिंग विद इट ऑल द पॉसिबिलिटीज सी लिफ्ट अर्थ कॉन्शियसनेस वन स्टेप हायर प्लांट लेवल एनिमल लेवल स्टेबिलाईजेस इज देअर वेट्स देन वेन इट एंटर्स इन टू द ह्युमन फेज देर आर सेवरल लेयर्स ऑफ इवोल्यूशनरी एक्सपेरिमेंट मदर एंड शोबिंदो वेर ऑलवेज देअर विद ह्युमॅनिटी अँड बोथ हॅव टॉक्ड अबाउट इट देर इज सो मच अबाउट देअर पास्ट लाईफ but for the first time we see that they are coming together and staying together forever and how i look at it is that the whole circle of shakti moving away from the divine to create and are coming back that gets completed with the mother and shivindu coming together it's like she has done what she had to do with all the forms and now she says i have come back carrying all this touch them by your transmuting hand and transmute it into something beautiful and divine we see another very interesting thing about the mothers being mother being born in france and coming to india when mother was asked why did you choose to be born in france she says because a certain kind of education was necessary she actually the parents destiny changed because before she came one year before that they moved to france and during that time in the old world now of course france is a different country altogether going down and down but at that point of time france was the hub of intellectual culture it was the age when uh, the rational enlightenment so to say had gripped the imagination of the race and uh, when we look at a lot of art writing the subtlety uh, all these things were being worked out in france the whole renaissance if you know and great figures were born there who were really embodying that kind of light that intellectual light to its ultimate extreme it reaches that point the mother embodies that light within her but now this light has to shift to another part you know when we travel in by air they give those maps so one of that interesting map is that night and day i just i get fascinated watching it that you know it is night here it's like a curve no sign curve uh, and then it is shifting and now it is day it keeps reminding me how the whole cycles of creation go it's a very amazing meditation just to watch that whole slow change so after couple of hours you say oh um, uh, uh, india it was night now it is beginning to be day there people must be awake there it's an amazing experience so we see that france which had embodied the spirit of renaissance she takes that goes through a whole journey and she says now shakti at her next stop the next stage is a renaissance in india it has to be worked out and what is that renaissance obviously the intellectual renaissance was worked out in europe it's a it's a continent most suited for it but a spiritual renaissance has to be worked out with india at its center and this is the deeper sense of the mother moving carrying all of that to pondicherry and putting it there so that a new story a new creation or as they have said a new act in the drama of life can be enacted so this is in in brief it's a subject for the next one hour also i could speak on it with great joy but let me stop here and if there are some questions we can take because i think people have traveled and
they must be quite tired. It's 9.30 at night to talk about the new creation and the old creation passing away. But if there are questions, we can talk about it. Yes, please. Yeah, so obviously um, the old world is not going to give up so readily. It's going to be a tough fight. And uh, Shobindo speaks about it that when the cycle of creation changes from, uh, say, the age of uh, Kali or Iron Age to the Golden Age, then again each age has its minor uh, four ages. So, you know, there are periods within, you know, the Satyog or the Golden Age where you will have the uh, really golden aspect and they would be within it dips, sudden dips. It's like, you know, humanity pulling back everything down. So, we will see sudden upsurge of these things about genocides, even, you know, brazen violence is in pockets. But the other part which is interesting is, the mass of humanity, the collective human mind is rejecting it. So, these things will come up from time to time, because darkness is not going to give way. You know, in Savitri, it's very beautifully described, the death even though it knows defeat inevitable, yet it doesn't concede. So, it's bound to. But one thing we can be sure of, and that the mother has assured, practically assured, that, well, we won't, really, it won't develop into a third world war kind of scenario, because mass of humanity will reject it. Collective mind of the race will not accept it. I mean, we can't imagine situations like Second World War where a leader says, I'm going to kill, you know, uh, people who are not like, of, you know, of a certain group. I'm going to destroy them. And the people who are in the nation who don't belong to that, um, that religion, they are very happy about it. This won't happen now. I mean, there will always be a lot of masses of humanity which will resist it. And that's the beautiful part. Also, the world has become so beautifully wired now. Whether we like it or not, Facebook has come to stay. And, you know, many such things have wired the world in such a way that information is traveling very fast. So the Hitler's propaganda machinery cannot work very long. Very soon things get out. You know, one tweet is enough. So, thankfully, you know, we are in a different world for sure. Despite these lapses and uh, momentary backslidings. She knew, to start with, she knew the um, the greatness of India. As I said, you know, uh, she had read and even translated some of the Bhakti Sutras of Narad. She had read the Bhakti Sutras of Shandilya. She had read and realized the truths of the Ishupanishad. She had realized the truth of the Gita. So she was a Siddha Yogini, if we have to use the Indian term. In fact, she had no reason to come to India for that matter. Person of that stature, 
doesn't uh, is not you know confined to a geographical space she was anyways communicating with all kinds of great masters so from one point of view she had no reason compelling reason to make her come so she didn't come seeking for any new light because that is a mistake many people feel that the mother is a disciple for of shirobindo shirobindo made it very clear she is a collaborator in the work but the kind of work that she had to do needed the coming together of shakti and the ishwara as you know in that famous uh, we come back to that mahadeva story it's very interesting that parvati uh, once abandoned shiva how does she abandon she tells shiva just to maybe you know you may remember or may not so let me remind you they are both in a beautiful garden and she tells shiva can you get me that flower shiva is surprised at this crazy request i mean parvati is mother nature herself so she doesn't need shiva to get a flower then she adds a condition that if you don't get this flower within this time i will completely forget you and you have to struggle to uh, find me just as i had to struggle to find you in in a previous you know life so just as parvati did tapasya to find uh, please shiva now you have to do tapasya now it's very interesting that parvati goes into a state of self oblivion she loses all her powers so much so that she feels helpless she feels dependent if demons chase her she doesn't know you know how to protect herself whereas she is the jagan mata now you see how divine has to do tapasya shiva has to take it upon himself shiva is fully conscious parvati is not conscious so shiva becomes her master and teaches her do this do that this is how he also becomes the obstacles he also makes her go through the difficulties and the dangers and step by step she is growing now meanwhile at another plane of consciousness there is a battle going on with a interesting character who is born out of shiva himself and he is jalandhar and and you know he is born again in a very interesting way but that apart he is born out of the anger of shiva who wants to you know destroy indra and his hegemony so he does that but to destroy this man shiva and shakti have to come together and shakti doesn't know she is shakti she is helpless so shiva prepares her step by step then a moment comes when shakti fully realizes in fact just before that moment this demon captures her and locks her in a world of imagination created by him the i'll not release her and then finally the last stage where she is freed from even that and they come together and this demon is destroyed it's a very symbolic story and that is how we have to see the story of mother and shirobindo in one way that the mother is shakti who has gone for millions of years she is creating she says in agenda in one of the place my child i am ancient very ancient i am millions of years old and i am waiting that's why in the beginning of the century she identifies herself with the earth consciousness completely and does the tapasya for the earth all the tell tale marks of the avatar that's why you know because it's important to understand to be what it means to be a disciple of an avatar it is not the same thing as just you know taking initiation in a hermitage with a guru to be the disciple of an avatar is a great responsibility it is to participate in a mainstream evolution of the 
march of mankind say exceptional privilege as he has said rare and exceptional privilege it cannot be equated by another yogic initiation so she prepares she does the sadhana for earth which master has done sadhana for earth we don't i mean something unique and then when she does it she has to bring it back to the lord because without that and where is the lord he has chosen to be in india <laughs> that simple as that and shivinda also travels to the west gets all the you know that time the the country which had as as was said that the nation who empire whose where sun does not set that was the extent of the british empire shivinda goes there studies there masters all the uh, ways of life there comes back to india she has to come back and be with shivinda so her coming to india was purely because that's where her work lay if shivinda was in alaska mother would have gone to alaska so her but that's what destiny is that divine has chosen now in fact shivinda says in yoga and its objects that for each age of mankind there is a divinely chosen country and while every country has something to do for this world it is unique but for every chatur yog there is a chosen country which has to do a certain kind of work and then he says for this chatur yog it is india and then he says that when people are when humanity has to work upon matter this greater truth is veiled from india divine veils it and the divine unveils it so just before shurbindo we see i was just referring to the kind of darkness in india which even till date i mean female infanticide and all these things is horrible thing the position of women in society but this is only an extension of the darkness which had completely eclipsed india made it feel helpless like a slave but now there is a resurgence and an awakening why not because of a country but because india has to survive and rise for the sake of the world because it carries a light within its heart a mystic light which still can save humanity and because it's a prepared country but if india wouldn't have responded at all surely shurbindo would have he was not tied to india he would have he was already offered a land in alaska i'm sure he would have been welcome even in america he would have been here he could have been anywhere but it's because india was chosen has been chosen for this evolution that she comes otherwise previous births of shurbindo they're all in europe it's amazing precisely because that whole evolution of the old world under the uh, with the coming of you know socrates and his disciple plato we see a whole rational enlightenment came up in the western context in europe and shobindo's previous births if you see socrates da vinci then of course he he was behind the french revolution his force was working behind napoleon uh, then uh, what was that uh, french king all of them are in europe and mother's birth also many of them precisely because evolution was being worked there now the stage has shifted so they have to be in the new stage so both come there and mother said this so beautifully in one of her reminiscences when she was asked uh, about her reminiscences she says the reminiscences will be short i came to india to 
meet Shirobindo. <laughs> Very simple. <laughs> she didn't come for any of us jokers. <laughs> I came to India to meet Shirobindo. I lived in India to serve Shirobindo. And after his departure, I continue to be there. Why? Because she speaks about his work, which is of enlightening mankind to prepare for the divine love. Now the beauty is that in 1950, when Sri withdrew from physical scene, from the limit of her mortal senses, in 51, the mother actually contemplated at a point of time of going back to France, outwardly. Why? Because, well, there were all kinds of people, some believing in her, some doubts and, you know, the law would also come in the way because, you know, everything was in Shurbindo's name. Shurbindo's brother, that's why it's so tricky when people talk about relationship with great men. We should be very, very careful. Shurbindo warned this long back. Shurbindo's own brother's son claimed stake at the ashram that, you know, it belongs to me now by the law, property. So, Nalida came and asked mother, Mother, what shall we do? She said, tell him to come and take over. He was shaken. The matter ended there. Then when mother was actually thinking of coming back, there is a very touching little story. And the story is of Amrita. So, you know, everybody was saying, no mother, don't go, how can this be? And of course, these people, Nalnida, Pranabda and Pavitra, they all stood like, you know, solid rock, Puraniji, how can, you know, you even think of this? So, Amrita came up with a very novel thought. <laughs> she says, mother, see, I hear that you are going back to France. Please buy two tickets. <laughs> I don't mind whether you are here or there. She has said, I, I am bound to no race, no civilization, no country can claim me, but you take me with you. So, she came to India because of a work she had to do with Shurabindo. Shurabindo was born in India because he had to keep his own promise. What was his promise? He made a promise unwittingly or knowingly. <laughs> you see, it's amazing that during the First World War, we have the gospel of the new creation and another gospel which was given to mankind which will yet liberate humanity was also given during the great war Mahabharata war that's why I keep saying divine has a wonderful sense of humor <laughs> the Gita, the song of immortality was given during the great Mahabharata war, of all the moments Sri Krishna chose that and Arya, Shravindo almost repeating an act is being given when the first world war is going on. So it's amazing. Now what promise Krishna made to Arjuna? He said, Sambhavami yoge yoge, yada yada hidharma siglani. Now he had to keep that promise. So he came and what other country than India where all said and done, I must tell one thing. Whatever may be the darkness, obscurity, but one thing is there, that it, in, in the Indian soil, there is love for the divine still echoing, resonating in the very dust of India. And I am saying this with all, all responsibility. It resonates in the very dust. When Swami Vivekananda was asked, you have been all around in the world. Now, what is your vision of India now? Earlier you used to like it very much. 
So has your understanding changed? So Swami Vivekananda had this to say, India was always dear and holy to me, but now that I have seen the world, its very dust is sacred. Nowhere in this world you will find the madness of the gopis. Nowhere this kind of many-folded expression and exploration of the divine. Nowhere this plunging from many, many dimensions, directions, levels into the deepest penetralias of existence called as yoga. Nowhere such a beautiful harmony and synthesis at once of religion and science, of secular and spiritual efforts, both mounting towards a common goal. So, India is a special and divinely chosen country. And I don't say it because I am in India. I mean, because there is nothing like an Indian by birth. It's because that place nurtures it. it. I mean, so many things, surrender, offering, faith. One feels so blessed that one didn't have to think about all this and one imbibed it with the mother's milk. Countless stories woven around the presence of the divine. And there is no way you can turn these stories into purely a religion. A, a, a land where spirituality itself evolves. It's not shut into one dead formula of the past. But it evolves. The word of the living master always supersedes all that may have been written so far. Where still you can find living embodiments of truth and light. That's what makes India a very special place. And I'm sure the gods do find it their own favorites and no wonder Sri came there. Took into himself all the darkness and gave in return light. That Sri experience as seven year old which is often so much misquoted where he says that he was lying down and suddenly in Darjeeling he experienced as seven year old all the darkness rushing into him. And he says, it left me only after I returned back to India. Now what was that darkness he was absorbing? When Shubindu left his physical body, he absorbed the darkness that had arisen from the bowels of the earth post-Second World War. But even as a child, he was absorbing all the darkness that had come to envelop India. Making it fall like a country which has forgotten its very origin, Shakti had lay totally dormant. And that Shurbindo carries it, gathers more from all around. But when he comes, Mother India says, fine, that is taken away and gives him a vast calm and peace. So, obviously that relation is very deep and Mother then has to come because Mother, of course, sees the Shakti. Divine can choose places but the divine Shakti cannot. So she has been all around, all over the world. All her past when we see is so wide. But this is the field for the new drama. So she comes. This is a very nice uh, last bit, um, I, I must say. Uh, when she met Shurabindo, before that she had these series of visions where she would see Shurabindo come to him. And one, uh, I mean she didn't know he is Shurabindo, but one figure who would keep coming and with whom she formed an intimate relation and called him Krishna. It's later on she saw that he is Sri So this vision started somewhere around 1904-1905. First time when she saw him 
and he looked like a Greek god and he bowed down. She didn't know anything about Indian culture. Instinctively she did that. Then she says, when I saw him, the same, exactly the same image of my visions come true. And she says it did not end there. It continued, this whole number of things happened in her inner life after seeing Shurabindo in her inner vision. So she says after that she went to Japan. Now, that was for a special purpose. We can talk about it some other day. But she was there, she was working there and the whole First World War was worked out. Actually she went to France and then to Japan to be more accurate. And then in Japan one day she says, I have tried this to convert this particular Asura. I had promised to you but Lord, I am not able to do it. What shall I do? Give me an indication. That time mother writes a very interesting prayer in prayers and meditation. The meal that I had prepared for man, since man refused it, I offer it back to you God. It is referring to a particular being whom she had chosen to convert. So she says that I was praying what to do and suddenly she had a vision of the Supreme. And she says that twice I have seen this vision of the Supreme more magnificent and majestic than the vision of the Gita. And he comes to her and gathers her in his arms. Or he or it or the doesn't matter. And turns westward and she finds herself right before Shurabindo. Literally that well, enough is enough, now you have to be here. And the next day her husband says, let's go back to India. And the journey returns started. So the mother, uh, of course, that aspect of Shakti and uh, higher Prakriti, if you want to put it, because it's not lower Prakriti, but para Prakriti. She has gone all around the world, gathered the seeds which are ready and ripe for the new creation and brings them in a basket and offers it to the Lord. So together they must come and then the new drama should start. One who would stay behind. Now again their action is also dual. If you really look very closely, Mother and Shurabindo's work, all those who were as individuals preparing for the new life, for the new consciousness, they were put under Mother's charge. So we see that 1926, 24th November, Mother is given charge of the entire ashram. Means everybody who is aspiring for the new life. Now who are these everybody? They are not individuals. They are individual representatives from the old humanity picked up for the new. But they are representatives. So whatever is worked in them will have a collective action. But what is the action of Shurabindo? He works on the cosmic forces. Idea forces that are released into the atmosphere. So his action is cosmic, global. Whereas whenever an individual has to aspire, he says go to mother. It is through mother that you will receive my grace. So they very beautifully, um, it's a wrong word to use the word, divided their work <laughs> because there is no division. They are one and the same. But they took two bodies so that the work can be done in this wonderful way. So Shurabindo was always busy with the cosmic forces. She was also working but that was not primarily her domain. So in the second world war though mother has also worked but primarily we see Shurabindo engaged, involved and that is why Shurabindo suffered this fracture because he was so much tackling the universal forces, the hostile forces that he says I totally forgot that they could even attack me. He was 
busy that day protecting the mother and that's when they found an entry. So very beautifully their action is so Shobindo taking care and in all his writings we find that. Cosmic vision, cosmic sentiment, cosmic processes if one wants to put it. With mother, how an individual should do, how you should eat, how you should sleep, how you should meditate, how you should walk the path. So this is how the two come together. Which was not impossible for the divine but would have been very difficult if one of them had to do it all alone. Yes, Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Very nice question. Uh, well, it was not. Huh? I'll repeat the question. So the question was that uh, the mother had the vision of Shurbindo. Uh, I may slightly correct it. Not from very childhood, but as I said, 1904 onwards. Uh, so she was by then, uh, which means 78, uh, 88, 98. She was around 26. She had already realized the inner divine. She had all deep, profound yogic experiences. So it's a little later than that. From childhood, she had an experience of great masters. And one being with whom she did connect well and called him Krishna, that is between 11 and 13. But that experience where she sees Shurbindo uh, in a figure and called him Krishna like a Greek god, that's a later one. So did Shurbindo also foresee? Well, uh, from whatever is available. Shurabindo has not said anything openly. Partly could be that Shurabindo was very, very reticent. His communications, uh, I mean, unlike mother who is so uh, easily dealing with people, uh, Shurabindo would was known for, it's only when he has written that he has written like this. But he would speak very little. Even the records that he has left are very cryptic. Most of these records start from 1912. So what happened before that, we don't know. But few hints are there. For instance, in um, 1908-99, around that period, there are two particular masters. One was Ma Sharda Devi and another was Swami Vishuddhanand. And both remarked in their own way that the Divine Mother has taken him in his arms, in her arms and is carrying him. So it's, it's no more an individual life journey and people have to worry about. So his relation with the Divine Mother in that highest form, the yoga was already pursuing that path, that part of it. What about this particular mother? Well, before their coming, Shobindo speaks about accomplished great European yogis, the mother and the husband when they are coming. He spoke about it and the word had spread to people. Then, um, mother experienced many things, uh, breaking of that, you know, all the formations, etc., uh, then Shurabindu was asked later on, what did you see in the mother? So there he has reported something very interesting. This Barin asked Shurabindu and uh, he told about this to Nalnida and now it is part of a um, recorded literature. So Shurabindu said, it's there in the reminiscences of Nalnida. Shurabindu when he saw the mother, first time he saw Surrender realized down to the very physical cells of the body when the mother did pranam. It was not just a pranam but a complete surrender from the very highest states of consciousness to the very physical cells of the body. I mean who else but the divine Shakti could do it. 
And Shubindu says at that moment I knew that the time has come for the divine life. Because divine life needs this surrender. And then from then on we see the mother practically showing to people how should you surrender to Shubindu. I mean before that people would sit in front of him putting their uh, you know feet on the table right in front and dealing him just like a friend like Arjuna to Krishna. The mother came and sat on the floor teaching them how you should be before him and many other things. So she, Shurbindu saw in the mother the embodiment of perfect surrender. What Radha represented in the age of Krishna. Except that it's debatable whether Radha actually existed or not. You know, whether she was, uh, you know, Harivan Charit speaks about her, that she is a truth of the mystic world, no doubt about it. And she was created in literature to show that a day will come when perfect surrender and love for the divine can be embodied. And the mother embodied that. This is what Sri has openly commented. Later on, yes, when Amrita asked Sri I hear that she is a great, uh, great uh, yogin or great uh, sadhika or great realized person. The term may not be important. Shubindu says, yes, she is indeed very great. Then Amrita says, but she does, doesn't come out and give meditation. The mother would stay for a long time in her room. She would hardly meet people. It is only in between that she came out and freely interacted. But bulk of her time she would remain inside. So Shirobindo says, yes, yes, she doesn't come out. But a day will come when impelled by her love for the divine, Impelled by the divine love and service to the divine, she will come out. And that will be indeed a very great day for humanity. So, he knew her role and everything. But the time had to come. Mother's identification with the divine mother is documented in prayers and meditation. Where she describes this experience of union with the divine mother. First, she is with us. She talks of that. Then the complete identification which takes place. So obviously Shurabindu was completely aware of all this. I mean this is while she is in Pondicherry. But he doesn't speak, he doesn't write it in his diary. Okay, so thank you. I think it is 10 o'clock.